Heavenly Father, it's so hard at times to hear your word. We find so much noise in our hearts and minds and so much noise throughout the week. Um, I ask, Lord, that during this time, you would open up your word to us. And that as we hear this supernatural deliverance of Peter, we wouldn't think of it as just a, a good story or an interesting Bible teaching, but we would see that you in all your glory and all your majesty that you do, in fact, deliver your people for your own glory. And we, being delivered from the power of sin and death, are those people too. And so I ask, Lord, that we would be able to participate in the story this morning, that you would, by your Spirit, encourage us to be a, a people who also pray earnestly to be a people who reject self-glory and desire for you to be glorified. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do, and that is transform our hearts and minds that we might be as Christ is. Um, I, I praise you for the preservation of this text and the opportunity to study it. I pray that you would use a sinner like me to faithfully proclaim the gospel from it. And bless my brothers and sisters this morning that we might receive it with all the power and majesty that it reflects. Cause us to see you clearly this morning, um, to be swept up in the awe and the wonder of your majesty. Give us a greater understanding of the sacrifice of Christ that we might be brought into this great family. And in your spirit, I pray, Father, that um, you would communicate to us. We want to be a people that hear well and live well in accordance with this truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hmm. Hmm. For 2,000 years, brothers and sisters, the church has seen persecution and peace. For 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, we've seen the church go through times of great growth and times of stagnation. But in the midst of it all, for 2,000 years we've seen God's providence. For the discerning eye, for the Christian throughout church history, we've seen God faithfully bring his plan of redemption to the nations, calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his kingdom. So we're, we're 10 years now post-death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And 10 years in, we're seeing the gospel go out. And we've seen it over the past few weeks. It's made its way to Judea and Samaria, down to the Ethiopian eunuch. It made itself to the Samaritans and then to Antioch. And we're, we're enjoying this great growth of the, of the gospel and the church. And then we, we get to Acts 12 and the persecution picks up again. And we shouldn't be surprised because that is the, the movement of church history times of peace and times of persecution. This one happens to be particularly severe. The apostle James is executed by the sword. Um, and, and Peter, we find, is in jail awaiting execution. But one of the things that I want you to be encouraged by, instead of the, the church floundering during these times as they see their leaders, the apostles themselves, being executed or imprisoned, it flourishes. The church grows in the midst of the persecution. And it was going to grow and continues to grow because they were relying upon God's sovereignty and his goodness. 
They were relying upon a good God to not just bring them through, but to enable them to thrive in the midst of hardship. In fact, if you were listening closely, verse 24, Luke closes this entire dialogue of the deliverance of Peter and the destruction of Herod. In verse 24, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, persecution did not slow it down. It actually escalated it. The gospel went out and more people were saved. I would like us to be deeply encouraged this morning by this passage. I want you to be in awe and wonder at the power and majesty of God delivering Peter from that dungeon cell. But I want you also to be rightly encouraged so that when you go through difficult times, and maybe you're in one right now, when you go through times of depression or discouragement or you you lose a loved one or you're battling sickness, I want you to know that God is in the midst of that with you. And if you are willing to come alongside Christ, he will not just take you through it, he will cause you to thrive as well. That's what we see in the early church And I pray that's what we will be able to do as a church as well. There are three things that I would like to show you from the passage. Number one, persecution prayer. What's that prayer look like? Number two, divine deliverance. And number three, prideful punishment. So persecution prayer, divine deliverance, and prideful punishment. The theme of the sermon is actually Psalm 34, 17. Um, Much better that God's word be the theme than mine. Psalm 34, 17, the psalmist said, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. When the righteous cry out to God, He delivers us from all of our troubles. So point number one, I pray that you're with me. I hope that your heart is rightly stirred in light of those songs. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I could not get through them without crying. Um, we, we want to have a right heart before the Lord this morning, so receive the word accordingly. Number one, persecution prayer. So we're right in the middle. It's it's the same time that God was pouring out his spirit in Antioch, 42, 43 AD, somewhere in there. And we find out that Herod Agrippa I is going after the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He's he's attacking them. Now, if you don't know about Herod Agrippa I, he's not the same Herod you know from the Gospels. That was Herod the Great, although not so great. A very powerful king who was the, he was the infamous king that went after the Christ child. Remember, he tried to get the Magi to give him some inside information so he could find Jesus and what? And kill him, right? So Herod Agrippa I is Herod the Great's grandson. You say, well, what happened to his father? Well, his father was killed by Herod the Great because he was worried he was going to send the throne. And so he sent Herod Agrippa and his mom off to Rome. So Herod Agrippa I, this is the Herod we're talking about in this passage, he was reared amongst Roman aristocracy. And so even though he was Jewish by blood, he was fully Romanized, his entire childhood brought up in that. So much so that when his friends and classmates, who by the names of Caligula and Claudius, who became Roman emperors, when they ascended to power, they took Herod Agrippa I and they put him in power too. And he actually had the title king of the Jews, not Jesus, Herod Agrippa I. He reigned over Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, all the way up to um, the Decapolis, the Transjordinary. So he had, he had an area bigger than his grandfather did in terms of his rule. He was a ruthless dictator, and he loved power, and he fought to make sure that he retained his power And so in the text, you heard that he executes the apostle James. That's James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. 
He executes him by the sword. Great debate. Did he behead him? Did he stab him? We don't know. But when he did, he realized he got a great response from the Jews in Jerusalem. They were very pleased that Herod was going to go after and try to kill some of these upstart apostles. And so in light of the response he got by killing James, he said, I'm gonna, I'll go after some others. And so, of course, he goes after Peter. I mean, if you want the big fish, right, go after Peter, put him in prison, and try to execute him as well. Now, it's likely that Herod heard about the 12 being arrested and then supernaturally delivered. And that's why you have such extreme measures being taken to make sure that Peter does not escape. There are literally four squadrons of four guards each, so 16 trained soldiers to make sure that this apostle, this fisherman from Galilee, stays in prison. That's the extreme measure that we take. And so, as with James, Herod's intention, look at the latter part of verse 4, was to bring him out before the people. That literally means to, to put him on the hall of trial. Right? He's going to bring him out, bring false accusations against him, and then have him executed too. And in so doing, get more political capital. Get the support from the Sanhedrin and other Jews. He happened, to arrest him, he happened to arrest him at the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now that, if you remember, it begins with Passover and goes another seven days. And so in order to not lose any political capital at all and not to offend the conservative Jews, he's going to wait until the end of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread to bring him out and hopefully get him killed. Now we're told something very interesting in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, Peter was kept in prison. And now while Peter is in prison for, for probably a matter of days, something else is happening. Something else is happening that Herod was not aware of. And even if he, if he had been aware of it, I don't think he would have cared at all. We're told in verse 5 that Peter was kept in prison. Look with me with your eyes. But, and these are the glorious divine intervention contradictions in Scripture. Peter's in prison, but what? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in prison, and the church is praying. Now, this is a key verse, and Dr. Luke sets it up as such in Herod's attempt to kill uh, a son of God, a child of God, an apostle of Christ. And Dr. Luke wants the reader to see the scene that's set clearly and ask this question, who's stronger? Who's stronger? Herod Agrippa I, with all of his political connections in Rome, with his dungeons and his guards and his chains, or the prayer of the church? Which one is stronger? This is the, the power struggle that's set up for Luke. He's asking it then, and it's asked to us now. It's set before us every day. Which kingdom is stronger, the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? Stephen and James had already been executed, and no doubt the church was praying for them, but they lost their lives. And so the question was, Peter's name going to be added to that list of all those who had already been martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ? Luke tells us the church prayed earnestly for his release. And at this point in time the story, they don't know what's going to happen. They know that he's in trouble, but what they do know is that they have a God who hears their prayers. And so they go to God as a church, and they pray earnestly to him. My beloved, this is the type of prayer life that Christian churches, true Christian churches, are supposed to have in times of peace, and especially in times of persecution. 
when we gather together and we pray to God to overcome that which we cannot overcome ourselves. Peter's in prison awaiting certain execution, but the earnest prayers of the church were lifted up for him. Why did they do that? Well, they know God. They know that the Bible is littered with God's people praying to God and God supernaturally intervening and delivering his people. Uh, I, I started a list here and I realized I would go for like five hours. Again and again, God's people pray the impossible and what happens? The impossible comes. I'll just give you a few. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery in Egypt and they cried out to God and what did God do? He sent a deliverer. He sent Moses to redeem them. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah. Hannah, we're told, prayed to God in deep anguish and many tears. And what did God do? He answered her prayers and brought her a son by the name of Samuel. When Elijah prayed for God to revive the, remember the widow in Zarephath, her son? 1 Kings chapter 17, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he was revived. In other words, the history of the church, even to this day, is God's people crying out to God, petitioning God for a supernatural answer, and a supernatural God answers his people. Two things to note from verse 5 that are extraordinary. Number one, it was earnest prayer. Meaning what? Fervent, passionate, serious, from the heart, petitioning God. They were not simply going through a church prayer service. And that's not to diminish the power of prayer anytime the church prays. But there's a tendency for churches to get religious and we gather and we pray. And we pray. And we pray. These saints are engaged in fervent, earnest, sweat, blood prayers. Petitioning God to spare Peter's life. There's something else that I love about this. It says the prayers are made by what? Look at the latter part of verse 5. By the church. It's by the church. This is not Peter's biological family. I'm sure they were praying. It's not just the apostles alone. I'm sure they were praying. It's not just the elders in the church at Jerusalem. I'm sure they were praying. It's the body of Christ, the entire church in Jerusalem, coming together to do what? To exercise one of the most lethal weapons we have at our disposal to fight against evil and darkness. The power of a praying church my beloved do we not now as a body of believers have equally compelling reason to fervently gather and pray in light of our cultural moment in light of what's taking place today we have we have babies being murdered in our backyard every day babies that's compelling reason for the church to gather and pray we have babies in our schools being given hormones to change their God-given gender. That's compelling reason for the church to gather and pray. Just this past year, I mean, we've seen the plans of Satan thrive, dividing races, confusing gender, promoting economic and political chaos. And we have seen direct persecution against the church for the first time in many years the church being forbidden to gather while bars and tattoo parlors and abortion clinics remained open. 
in the midst of such uncertainty and instability, if we're not praying as a people, if we don't do this great, powerful work, we must conclude a couple things. One, we don't believe that God's going to hear and answer our prayers. We just don't believe he's going to do that. Or two, and maybe even worse, we don't care. I don't know which one's worth. They're both bad. One's a lack of faith and one's a lack of compassion. The church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries has been a church filled with faith and filled with compassion, gathering together regularly to pray against the evil of this world. I'm so thankful the church in Jerusalem prayed for Peter. He had more work to do. God heard, God answered. So point number one, we see the church of God engaging in persecution prayer and God moving by answering their prayers. Number two, divine deliverance. So the prayer is answered. You know this. You heard it read, so this is, not a, this is not a mystery how this story turns out for you. Dr. Luke, though, in verses 6 through 19, he divides up the deliverance of Peter into two parts. He talks about Peter actually getting out of jail through the supernatural intervention of the angel and then him showing up at Mary's house. Um, and so I'll talk about it in that context too. So the actual escape from pis- prison and then his reception at Mary's house. It's the night before his execution, right? So we're at the very end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, probably that seventh day following Passover. And the next day, Herod's planning to bring him out, put him on trial, accuse him of crimes he did not commit, and have him uh, put to death. And so here's Peter in a dungeon, and I'm not going to go into detail on the quality of life in a Roman dungeon. Look that up. Horrid. He's in a dungeon, at night, he's chained to two guards, and then there are two more guards standing at the door, and there are four more waiting to take that shift a few hours later. Right? So he's going nowhere, not without God's help. And when we find Peter in this state, he's what? He's snoozing. He's sleeping. Now, my beloved, I know this has probably been taught for centuries and certainly taught in centuries. I don't know about you. <laughs> if when I, I don't sleep well I do not sleep well at all the slightest light comes into the room from a car passing by or the door opening or the slightest sound and I'm awake Peter is in jail bound to two guards awaiting his execution and he's sound asleep how is that possible I, I don't think you've had a night that anxious yet I don't think we've had anxious nights but not that not You're waiting to be put to death. How did Peter do it? How did he do it? Well, first and foremost, this is not his first time round, right? As we would say, this is not Peter's first rodeo, right? It's not. He's walked with the Lord. The Lord has been faithful. He's already been in prison twice. One time he was let out supernaturally. So he's thinking, oh, well, this this might happen again, right? Um, He was resting in the experience he already had with God. And there's so much, my beloved, there's so much to say here. I won't say it, but there's so much about wisdom experience in the Lord and being able to walk through times of troubles. Paul said in in Romans chapter five, he said, suffering produces what? Endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, Peter had been through enough now. His character had been shaped by the suffering and therefore he had placed his hope in God and that hope, he said, is not going to put me to shame. No matter what happens, whether I live or die, I will stand with God in Christ. 
And I, and I believe one of the reasons, listen, older people, I believe one of the reasons that God commands older men and older women to come alongside younger men and younger women is just this, that older men and older women mature in the faith can come along those who are younger and say, listen, I know you're all worked up about this. I know you're, that this seems like the end of the world for you, but it's not, right? Christ has yet to come, and therefore, it's not the end of the world. And so we're supposed to, and I'll include myself in that older person now, we're supposed to come along those who are younger and get them to settle down when they think that the world is falling apart. Even, listen, even in the face of death, even on that hospital bed, even when the diagnosis is terminal, to come along. If they are in Christ, we can say, it is well with your soul, right? And we can bless them with that to bring the calm and make that situation that seems awfully big a little bit smaller. But secondly, and I think even more importantly, is that Peter's faith enables him to rest in God's will. He's, he's resting. He's, he's literally sleeping because he's okay with God's will, whatever God so ordains. Whatever God ordains is what? We just had a chance to say it. It's right. It's right. So Peter knows for me to die, I get to be with Christ. That's good. For me to live, I get to minister to the church. That's good. Either way, for Peter, it's good. So he sleeps. He sleeps. It's the same for us, my beloved. If you're in Jesus, it's the exact same for you. Peter had, had surrendered his entire life to God. Not just this moment, but his entire life. And so centuries before Horatio Spafford, his four daughters died on the sea and wrote, It is well with my soul. Peter, on that night in that cell, was singing in his heart, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let, listen, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. If you know Christ, that's your song too. Peter's able to sleep because his soul is secure in the Lord. He knows that Christ has regarded his soul as important and therefore he has redeemed him. And therefore, Peter, on the eve of his execution, can sleep like a baby. If you belong to Christ, then it is well with your soul this very morning. This very morning, if you are in Christ, it's well with your soul. So when Satan comes after you, and trials in your life are hard, when you find yourself sick or just fundamentally discouraged to the point of depression, maybe you're going through a financial crisis, maybe you've lost a loved one, you can rejoice in this simple truth that Jesus regarded your helpless estate and he shed his blood for your soul. Oh, what a beautiful truth. In your helpless estate, Christ said, I will die for that one. That one's mine. And that should give you great hope and great strength in this time when it is difficult for you and great hope in knowing that if Christ has regarded your soul as significant and shed his blood for you, then your eternity is secure and you have nothing, nothing but good days ahead with the Lord. Nothing. So Peter, the angel comes and poor Peter, poor Peter, he thinks he's having a vision again. Um, he's probably thinking, oh, this is just like the sheet and the animals that came down in Joppa at Simon's house. But this time, I don't, you know, he's learning a little bit. He thinks it's a vision, but this time he complies. Remember, in Joppa, God said, kill and eat, and Peter says, oh, I will not. Now the angel says, get up, 
get dressed, put your sandals on, put your cloak on, come follow me. And Peter says, yes, sir. And he marches right out past the cell, past the two guards in the cell, and they go out through what's called the Iron Gate. Depending upon where this location was, there was a massive Iron Gate that had to be opened and closed by multiple men. Okay, big. And they find themselves out. Peter's still thinking he's having a vision. And they find themselves out in the streets without detection of any kind, without resistance. And once safely outside, the Peter, the angel, he's gone, disappears. And then Peter says to himself, look at verse 11. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The Jewish people were expecting Peter to be put to death. Herod was going to get the political clout. Everybody was happy. This entire event, from beginning to end, from the angel entering to the cell to the angel disappearing, was God saying no to Herod. It was God saying, not today, Herod. You're not going to put Peter to death today. Now, Peter will. He will suffer a martyr's death as Christ had prophesied. But it would not be this day. That day would be decreed by God and God alone. And then Luke tells us, look, in verse 12, that when Peter realized this, that realized that he had been supernaturally delivered, that it wasn't a vision, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, where we're told there were gathered together the church and they were praying. Now, what struck me about this as I studied it, and I hadn't thought about this before, so I praise God for just this time in the Word, is that the angel doesn't escort him directly to Mary's house. I thought, why does he leave him? The angel leaves him literally right down the street from the jail. Now, if, if the, if the historian, historians are correct, and he was kept in the, what's, what was called the Tower of Antonia, the, the Roman barracks was literally at the tower. And so he is maybe a matter of a block or two away from being recaptured and put back into jail and executed the following day. So why did the angel leave? Why didn't he take him all the way? And as I thought about this, I thought, well, you know what? This is what God does with us all the time, right? God had delivered Peter supernaturally, and now he expects Peter to walk in the wisdom and prudence that God had given him to walk in. He expected him to remain free. My beloved, in Christ, you have been set free from the dungeon of sin and death. If you know Jesus, and just like the angel with Peter, the Holy Spirit, came upon you, maybe kicked you in the side too, waking you up. He broke the chains of sin that had you bound. He told you to dress in the righteousness of Christ. And then he led you out of the jail where you were sentenced to die for your sins before a holy God. He, said, he brought you past the demons. He brought you out of the gates of hell. And he brought you into the city of God. Just like Peter. And now, indwelt by the Holy Spirit with the word of God in hand, God fully expects you, delivered by him, to live as Peter lived. To live in accordance with the wisdom and prudence that God gives you. To be wise. To not be recaptured again by the sins that tempt you. Paul writes very clearly, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, what? Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. God has supernaturally delivered you if you're in Christ from the power of sin and death. Therefore, walk in righteousness. Well, that makes sense. That's smart. Peter, what did Peter, Peter did not run back and go, oh, let me back in. No, he, he went to Mary's house. 
he sought refuge. Now, practically, that means when, when God sets you free in Christ and you are truly free, and therefore he enables you to overcome the power of sin and every temptation in your life, it means, my beloved, that in God you must be prudent. We're called to be wise and to be prudent in how we live. We're called not to be recaptured by the temptations that held us bound before we knew Jesus. If you once struggled with alcohol, then you shouldn't be hanging out in a bar. You probably shouldn't be hanging out in a bar anyway, but if you struggle with alcohol, you really should not be. If you struggle with pornography before Jesus, you shouldn't be surfing the web at 1 a.m. That's wise. If shopping was your vice, then you shouldn't be hanging out in stores or spending hours and hours and hours on Amazon. If coveting, if you struggled with coveting before you came to Jesus, then you need to guard your eyes and you need to guard your heart from the things that those around you have. If you were a workaholic before God saved you, uh, then you've got to tighten the rein on your work hours. But I mean, God calls us to work, but he calls us to work so that we can serve in the kingdom. If you were a media addict before you came to Jesus, well, you might want to do some unplugging right? You might want to unplug a lot of stuff completely. My beloved, God expects his children, once set free in Christ, to make wise choices in how we live day in and day out. That's an expectation, and that's a reasonable expectation to live in accordance with the freedom that we have in Jesus, not to be recaptured by the temptations that once had us bound. So now that Peter's out, the second part of the deliverance story, it focuses on his reception at, at Mary's house in, in the middle of the night. Mary, not, there's so many Marys, right? It's Mary, the mother of John Mark. Um, Luke tells the event with a, a sense of humor. And I so love this, right? I mean, the Bible's serious. But, but there's also a time to, to laugh, and this is somewhat humorous, so feel free to laugh. Verse 13, Luke says, And when he, Peter, knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant ga- girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Peter's a fugitive. And I imagine it did not take too long for the soldiers to realize he's gone. And I imagine within a matter of minutes, they were out in the streets looking for him. And so here's Peter. He goes to Mary's house. He's knocking on the door. She's so excited just to hear his voice. She doesn't open the door. She leaves him there. He's probably like, it's like, oh. And there's Peter going, all right. She runs upstairs, and she's so excited. There's such relief. Um, I don't believe, though, that Luke just put this in here for comic relief. It's definitely, it can be needed. I don't think that's why it's here. I think that Luke put it here that we might get a glimpse into the praying hearts of the church in Jerusalem and the spiritual battle that takes place even when we pray. So Rhoda tells the church, Peter's at the door, look at verse 15. They said to her, such loving words, right? You're out of your mind. They were speaking the truth, maybe not so much in love, but she kept insisting that it was so, and then they, they kept saying, it is his angel. And so I want you to catch this. Peter is delivered out of the hands of Herod and certain death because they had prayed to God. It's an answer to their prayer, and yet in their response to God answering their prayer, they say to Rhoda, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. It's just his angels. Why would they even say that? First century Jews believed that every single person had a guardian angel. And some of them actually believed that when that person died, the guardian angel would go and visit family and friends to make us feel better about that. 
Yeah, it's, it's not biblical. In fact, it's just kind of weird. Um, but listen, they were more eager to believe that, something that was not in Scripture, than the fact that they prayed to God to save Peter and that God actually saved Peter. They were more prone to believe a myth than to believe that God actually answered their earnest prayers. God, being the gracious Father that He is, did. He did then, and He does now, my beloved. He answers your prayers, you know that. When you pray to the living God, He always answers by doing what is best. What is best for His glory, what is best for you, what is best for the church, what is best for the kingdom. And He makes, at times, He makes the impossible possible. There is no way Peter's getting out of prison apart from God sending an angel and delivering him. And yet they prayed, and God did. It was his only hope. Years later, he would be arrested again, and he would be executed, just as Peter, just as Jesus had predicted. But not yet. You say, why why not yet? Because there was more ministry work for Peter to do. There were more blessings to be put upon the church by the work of Peter. So, God delivers Peter and delivers him safely into their hands. And what an affirmation of prayer for them. Now, I don't know about you, my beloved. There are times when I'm praying and I'm thinking to myself, this is sinful. He's not going to answer this. I've prayed this so many times. Why would he answer it this time? He didn't answer it 10 years ago. Why answer it now? And I believe that many of us have concluded in our hearts and minds, even as we pray, that we're not going to get an affirmative yes, amen from God. So we pray for, even this morning, we pray for revival here in San Jose. But oftentimes in our hearts we think God has forsaken this place. He's not going to save anybody. We pray for our loved ones. And many of you did by name this morning. We pray for those people we love who we've prayed for and we've shared the gospel for again and again who continue to reject God and we think in our hearts God will never save them. We pray for deliverance from a particular sin or a toxic relationship or financial crisis. But like those in Mary's house, even as we pray, we've concluded that God will not say yes to our supplication that he will just say no again. My encouragement to you in light of this passage is for you to keep on praying fervently even when you doubt. Even when you doubt, keep praying. Listen, God is so loving and so compassionate. He's such a great father that he listens to his children. He hears his children. Even when you don't pray well and even when you're filled with doubt, he hears your prayers and he will answer them as they are best answered. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes not yet. Sometimes. When my, my children were young, they would, as, as kids do, they would request things of me as their father. And, and I, would, I would try, I would try to answer them based upon what was best, what was best for them, what was best for the family, what was best for the glory of God, trying to answer them as a good father. An example, when we, as if it's changed much, when my kids were growing up, the, the craze was video games for the young ones. I mean, they were just playing video games all the time. And I thought, well, that's not happening in our house. So my kids got a whopping one hour on Saturday, once a week, with appropriate video games. That was it. They didn't like that, obviously. All their friends were playing all the time. I was unfair. You know how the drill goes. 
Sometimes they would ask me during the week, Dad, can we just play for 15 minutes? And I would, I would usually say no. But sometimes, on the rare occasion, when school was good, the behavior was good, the chores were done, I would say yes. And they were always shocked when I would say yes. Most of the time, they thought I was going to say no, but what they didn't understand, now listen, the reason I'm telling this story, they didn't understand that I didn't say yes or no by how they asked. I said yes or no based upon what was best, best for them. So they didn't have to have perfect words. They didn't have to have perfect timing. Dad's in a good mood. Ask him now. They didn't have to have perfect confidence. In fact, most of the time they asked thinking I'd say no. So they didn't have perfect confidence. But when I did say yes on those occasions, they rejoiced in that. And so for us, my beloved, one thing we can take from this, and it's glorious, is that they prayed earnestly even though they were doubting. Right? We know they were doubting because Peter shows up and they said it must be a ghost. So they don't believe it. We can pray earnestly to God even when we doubt and be thankful that God will answer according to what is best. And we want to be children like that. Leaving, leave your skepticism outside the door of your prayer closet and go to God earnestly in prayer and then rest in his will. So Peter's at the door knocking. Let me in. Verse 16. And when they opened, they saw him and it says they, they were amazed. They're so amazed, they're, they're, it's, it's a ruckus. There's a hooting and a hollering going on. And Peter's like, shh, be quiet. I'm, I just got out of jail. Verse 17. But monitoring to them with his hand to be silent. Right? So he wants to be quiet too. This is a dangerous situation. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, which was an answer to their prayer. And then he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. He, he had to get out of there. Right? He's a fugitive on the run, so he had to get out or he'd be recaptured and put to death. So he's using wisdom and prudence there. Um, he says, go tell James. Now, this is not James the apostle. He's dead. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who had become a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he says, go tell James. Go tell the elders. Go tell the brothers of what God did with me. And he did that so they would be encouraged to press on. He said, go tell them. This is amazing. God delivered me from certain death, but here I am in the flesh. Encourage them to press on as well. So we've seen in the narrative Persecution prayers, number one. Number two, divine deliverance. I have one more, and I will close. Uh, prideful punishment. This, this great story of deliverance by God turns to judgment at the end. And, and Luke packaged this together for that reason. Verses 18 through 25. According to Roman law, the penalty for a soldier who had his prisoner escape was the punishment that that prisoner was going to receive. So we know that Herod had full expectation of putting Peter to death because he kills the soldiers, the, the, the 16 that allowed him to escape. He blames them. After we're told, after he examines them, he blames them. But I imagine their stories were all the same. What happened to Peter? We don't know. He's there one minute and he's gone the next. 16 people saying the exact same thing. So testify by two or three. The witnesses were there. It did not matter to Herod. Herod had to satisfy his anger and his rage that he lost all that political capital by Peter getting away. And so verse 19, latter part, he ordered that they should be put to death. That was the type of guy that Herod was. But Herod may have been able to exact vengeance upon his soldiers, but he was not going to escape the vengeance of God. Luke closes the chapter with the second climax. The first climax is Peter being delivered. 
The second climax is Herod's graphic demise. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Luke says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus. What a great name, Blastus. The king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So you say, well, why, why, why verse 20? Why, why do we have to learn about Tyre and Sidon and this economic? Because it's set up verse 21. It's the only reason it's there. Tyre and Sidon were to the north. They were coastal cities. They required, listen, they required the king's food from the inland, the crops that would come in. And so there was some economic tension between Tyre, Sidon, and King Herod. Probably uh, an embargo of some kind. And so they're able to strike this peace deal. And in light of this peace deal, he's in Caesarea. He's going, to, he's going to receive some glory for it, right? This is a good day. So on the appointed day, he ascends this throne, gets all dressed up, and gives this speech. Now what's fascinating is Josephus, who you've probably heard of. He was a, he's a very famous uh, first century Jewish historian. He records this event as well, and it's very similar to the record that Dr. Luke has. So we have parallel passages here. And he says, he's, he confirms Herod's in Caesarea. There's a deal that's struck, and he describes this royal robe that he puts on. Josephus writes this. He said, the robe was made of silver and glistened radiantly in the morning sun as he sat upon the throne. All right, so there's your picture. Herod sitting upon the throne in this robe that all the light is just glistening off, glorifying, right? Verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And you go, uh-oh. Well, don't say that, right? You say that. But that was very common back then, actually, for the masses of people to, to worship and adore and praise their king or their emperor. It was very common. The problem is, Herod's a Jew. And you say, all right, he, he was a Jew by name, he was raised a Roman, but he's a Jew nonetheless, and he knew full well, I know Herod knew full well, Isaiah chapter 42, that you do not take glory from God without expecting severe consequences. A nominal Jew, but a Jew nonetheless. The pagan idolaters in Caesarea, they say, you are a God, you have the voice of a God, and they shout that out, and what does he do? Don't say that. I'm not God. Yahweh's God. Don't say that. No, he doesn't. He takes it in. He receives it. He enjoys it. And then verse 23, Luke is very direct. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, killed him. Just like Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5. God says, you're going you're gonna to do this after what you did with my apostles. You're going to take glory for yourself from those I created in my image. God strikes him dead. And we're even told why. The latter part of verse 23, because why? Herod did not give glory to God. He did not give God the glory. Certainly in that moment, right? but this is Herod's entire life had been one of self-glorification. Even as a child, his expansion as king of the Jews. I mean, he didn't give God glory by, by going after the apostles of Jesus Christ and having them killed and imprisoned. Right? And he certainly did not give glory here by telling the crowd to stop and worship the true God. God said in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God says, I will not. 
All glory, all honor, all praise goes to whom? To God alone. Herod's end, latter part of verse 23, and it's intended to be graphic. If you go, ooh, that's right. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So in the presence of this crowd, I want you to imagine it. He's seated upon his throne in the early morning hours. The sun is shining. The robe is glistening. They are saying a voice of God. And the real God strikes him dead. And he's eaten by worms for all to see. Herod claimed God's glory. God's glory belongs to God. And so this is an exclamation point of judgment upon Herod. Now I hope that I hope that your heart breaks for Herod. I hope it's not one, yeah, you got him, God. That's not the right response, Christian. The right response is, what a horrible ending to be stricken by God in judgment because Herod received glory for himself. I would argue, my beloved, that glory stealing, and that's what Herod was doing. He was stealing glory. Glory stealing is at the root of all of our sin. Every time we sin, we're trying to bring glory to ourselves. Take glory from God instead of ascribing it to God. Now, we like to categorize. When we think of sin, we think of do's and don'ts, right? Do this, don't do that. We think of a list. But underneath all those do's and don'ts, underneath every single one, is our desire to be God. To live as we want to live, to think as we want to think. Is this not the lie that Eve believed when Satan said to her, Satan said, Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that when you eat of this tree of the knowledge and good and evil, your eyes will be opened and what? You will be what? Like God. The very foundation of sin is that desire for self-glory to be like God. Is this not the lie that we believe every single time we knowingly speak or do that which is contrary to the clearly revealed word of God? Is that not what we do? We want to be like God. I know the Bible says this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That makes me God, or at least God in my own mind, because there is only one true living God. We speak our own truth just like Herod, and we say to ourselves, we have the voice of God, and we believe it. We believe it. Or one of the things we see today, my beloved, we put on these, these virtual royal robes, and we blast our images and our messages on social media, so desperate for approval, so desperate for affirmation, and so desperate for glory. My beloved, if there is one thing social media has revealed, it's revealed many, one thing is that man's heart is very much like Herod's. We are desperate for glory. We're desperate to have that like. We're desperate to have those followers We're desperate to be influencers. Even if we don't have that official title, to be an influencer. In what way? This is Herod's heart, and God destroyed him for it. Now, I'm I'm not on social media, but there are times when I have to access it for work purposes. And my beloved, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm astonished at what I see Christians putting up. I'm astonished. And I'm not talking about the inappropriate things. I'm talking about the appropriate things, the pictures and the sayings. I think, why? 
What is the purpose of presenting ourselves in such a way that the world will see us and what? Glorify God or glorify us? The perfect picture of the perfect marriage or the perfect job or the perfect family on vacation and the perfect quote so that what? Someone might covet our life? So they might see us and give God glory for that? I'm not saying that's the motivation of all hearts, but I wonder at times, why is that picture up? Why that glistening robe? Why that cheeky saying to get people to think, wow, how deep, how profound, how smart, how beautiful. All praise and glory to God. Very rarely, very rarely. We don't see a lot of the ugly, do we? And I'm not on it, but when I see, I don't see, I don't see ugly pictures. I, I don't see the, the tattered robes. I don't see the sayings that make no sense. And yet that's our life, really, right? Much of our life is so much more the hard stuff, the ugly stuff, the tattered stuff, than it is the beautiful picture seated upon the throne in the beautiful robe with the glistening sun. And yet that's what we portray to a world. And I think we do it so we can ascend the throne in our own hearts and minds rather than giving God the glory. My beloved, every sin finds its root in self-glory, trying to be like God, and that's why God finds it so grievous. Every sin, big and small, is a glory stealing from God. God said, I will not yield my glory to another, and he means it. Not you, not your friend, no one. It's his. So this is the sin nature we're born in. This is the sin nature that we exercise freely, self-glory getting it for ourselves. But God, now here's the good news, and I will close. Out of his infinite love for you, God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, one in being with the Father. He sent his son who deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise to receive our just punishment. He sent Christ who is God himself, to pay the penalty for our self-glory. That's why he sent Jesus to ascend that cross and receive in himself what? The eternal equivalent of our punishment in hell, the being eaten by worms. And yes, our Lord spiritually was eaten by worms on that cross because that's what we rightly deserved for our glory starvation. Christ's true glory in exchange for our self-glory. And that's the substitution that takes place You say, well, why would he do that? Why would Christ die to pay for my sins, give up his glory to give me his glory? Why? So that your end doesn't have to be like Herod's. So your end doesn't have to be judgment and condemnation and being eaten by worms for how long? The Bible says that's eternal damnation, right? Being devoured by worms forever and ever, the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth. So your end doesn't have to be like Herod's, but your end can be like Peter's, where you are in that dungeon cell and you cry out for mercy and God comes and he saves you in Christ. And he brings you out into the light and into the kingdom forever and ever. That's why Christ did this great work on our behalf. What differentiated Peter and Herod? They're both Jews. Both of the bloodline of Abraham. What differentiated him? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, he was a disciple. He followed Jesus. And as a result, he was delivered from sin and eternal damnation. He's brought into eternal life. Herod followed himself. He followed himself. 
And as a result, he was judged and he was cast into eternal damnation. So the question for you as I close, in whom, my beloved, not what, in whom have you really placed your faith? In whom? Is your faith truly resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Do you know that by your ability to go through life, good times and bad times, maybe on the night before your execution, you're going to lose your job, you have to go get a diagnosis because you may have cancer, your loved one is sick, on the night before your execution, are you able to sleep like Peter because your trust, your faith, and your hope is in Jesus? Do you pray earnestly even when you doubt? If you do, then you're putting your trust in God's goodness to answer your prayers. We don't want to end like Herod. Herod put his strength in himself his politicking, his self-glory to get what he wants. Christ set us free from that, that we might walk in righteousness, not like Herod. Herod, I, I pray, is an historical testimony to you of what happens when we live and die in self-glory. His end is catastrophic and will be for all those who do not repent and believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But God does not desire destruction to be your end he desires it to be joy and peace and love in Christ. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forever and ever and ever. That is the redemptive plan. If you know Christ, that's your end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this truly miraculous story. I praise you for supernaturally intervening to save Peter's life and answering the prayers of the saints in Jerusalem. Father, I think that if most of us are honest, we're more like Herod than we are like Peter. We're more interested in our own glory, what people think of us, what we think of us, rather than what you think of us. I ask, Father, that you would help me, help my brothers and sisters to, to die to ourselves truly. That we would want our entire lives to bring you honor and glory. That we would not engage in anything that would detour from your majesty and your beauty. I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, show us the great work of Christ to redeem sinners like us and to bring us out of that dungeon cell that we placed ourselves in because of our own sin. And then as we see our lives in Christ now, now in your kingdom, in the kingdom of your Son, I pray, Lord, you would give us the wisdom and prudence to walk in righteousness, that we would not allow our temptations to recapture us. Father, cause us to walk in holiness so that we truly might bring you honor and glory in all that we do. You are most worthy of it. We want to be a people, we want to be a church that lives like that. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower us to do that, give us the desire to do that, um, and then take glory from it, Father. In your name, amen.